This year, 2023, it's the year that what? We're making every home an altar. And so uh, right before we got into Holy Week two weeks ago, where we began in Palm Sunday, we, the week before that, we wrapped up a series called For Better or Worse. And we were looking at relationships and marriage because that's a pretty big stone in the altar of our homes. Well, money is a pretty big stone in the altar of our homes as well as we are building an altar and we're saying, God, we want you to come and inhabit our homes. We want you to come and inhabit our hearts, our homes, and this church. We want to make an altar to you. God, we, we, um, you come where, you, where you're wanted. We want you here. We're, we're going to bring the wood. God, you come and bring the fire. We want your presence. And so money touches this area of our life. And if you guys re might remember six months ago, we actually began this series six months ago what the Bible says about money. Uh, and, and if you, you might remember that, you might not remember it, but it was the last opportunity that I had to preach right before my surgery. And I told you guys, the Lord spoke to me and said, this year I want you to speak about money. And we had gone all year, and I hadn't done it, and I thought I better be obedient to God and at least get one of these money messages in before the end of the year, because then after I recovered from my surgery, we were in the Advent season, and that wasn't really the appropriate time to go here. But I told you, we're going to revisit this in 2023, and here we are. And some of you, you might be here for the first time, or you're new to the church, or you're new to this series, and you're thinking, oh, great, I decided to come on the day that they were going to have, uh, you know, start a building campaign or a fundraiser. It's fundraiser Summer Sermon Sunday here at Seats. No, that's not what this is. I promise you, I assure you, we're going to talk exactly what the title of this message is, and that is what the Bible says about money. And so why are we talking about this? Because money, at its very core, is a heart issue. When you don't have any of it, you feel it. And when you have plenty of it, you feel it right? Both, both things. With money comes this promise of like security and peace and prosperity and satisfaction, but it comes to you in a way that only God wants to fulfill you. And so I don't believe that God is anti-money. I know that, hey, it's good when we have financial abundance. Praise the Lord for that. But make no mistake that money can never fully deliver on what it promises. That's why Jesus said you can't serve both, God and money. Money is competing to sit on the throne of your heart, which is where only God should sit. Amen? You know, money is incredibly personal. It's a personal thing. There's lots of friends that I have, and we talk about a lot of different things in life. We share about what's going on in our life. We share about things that we've gone through in the past. We're sharing about what's going on, you know, today, the highs and the lows. But very rarely do we talk about our own money, our own personal financial situation. Why? Because it's a very personal thing. We, we, we don't really discuss, like, how much do you make? How much was your house? You know, we don't talk. How much is in your checking account right now? How much personal debt are you carrying? These are not conversations that we talk about because it is very personal to us. We don't share those details. It's very connected to our hearts. And that's why we need to look at what the Bible says about money. Amen? 
So today we're going to read from Matthew chapter 25, and normally what we do here at Seeds is when we read the opening text, we all stand up together and we read it together. But today I'm going to ask you to just stay seated, and we're going to read through this, and it's, we're going to read this entire parable here, the parable of the talents that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 25. And so we're going to start in verse 14. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. If you don't have your Bibles with you, it's going to be up there on the screen. But if you're taking notes, uh, whether it be, be digitally on your phone or in a notepad or whatever, I encourage you to do that. And then maybe even under, underline some things here in your Bible. Verse 14, Jesus said, for it, what is it? It is the, the coming of the day of the Lord. It will be talking about, uh, you know, the return, of the, the return of Jesus. He's not even gone away once. But he's talking about, for it, the coming of the day of the Lord. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them, entrusted to them his property. Now, right there, if you've got a highlighter or if you've got a pen, you can underline that right there. Entrusted to them his property. It's his property. In verse 15, it says, to one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the uh, of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bring five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You, this is what you thought about me? You thought that, that I was a hard man? You, knew, you, you thought that I, I was reaping where I did not sow and gathering where I scattered no seed? If that's what you thought of me, then you ought to have invested my money at least with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was with my own plus the interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, 
even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, that's, that's like kind of a more difficult passage to say thanks be to God. But we do. We thank God for his word. I want to talk about four things that emerge from this parable about how we relate to money. The first thing is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. It all belongs to God. Everybody say that with me. It all belongs to God. Did you notice in the parable that everything belonged to the master? All of it. Even the servants really belong to the master. No one's investing any of their own money. They're all investing what belongs to someone else. They're playing with house money, as it were. And that's kind of a picture of our reality. And that's that nothing that you own actually belongs to you. It really belongs to God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Deuteronomy 8.18 says it is the Lord that gives you the ability or the power to get wealth. What that means is is that that God, it's like God saying, hey, even the job that you have, that where you earn the money, the money that it feels like it's yours, actually, I gave you the power, I gave you the ability, I gave you the strength, I gave you the intellect, I gave you the smarts, everything that you took to exert power in, or at that job, in that work, to get that money, it all came from me, so it belongs to me in the first place. Romans eleven thirty six. Paul writes and he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Meaning God created it all. He sustains it all and he owns it all. You don't really own anything. From the air in your lungs to the money in your bank account to those kids that you're raising, all of it belongs to God. He's entrusted it to you, but it belongs to him. There's a word for this. There's a word for this in the scriptures that's used to kind of like describe our role that we play in the kingdom of God. We are farmers. No, we are <laughs> stewards. Da 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 da. We're stewards. The word steward means that you care for something that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to someone else. God's given it all, or God owns it all, but he's given it to you. He's entrusted you with it. And now you are to go as a steward to go make the most out of it. But make no mistake, it belongs to God. It's wild to think about the achievements of mankind. Like, the achievements of mankind over human history, the pyramids, it's remarkable. To, let's fast forward several thousand years, and we have the space shuttle and, like, the rover on Mars. Mind-blowing. And to the things that sometimes we take for granted, like the huge energy plants that power our cities, into microchips and, and phones and computers and modern medicine. All of it is remarkable 
all of it is like, wow, these are amazing things that we've done. And yet the resources that, that were taken to do all of these things, they were already in the planet from the very first day that humans walked this planet. All of it it took to do all of those things were already here before we even walked the planet. Mankind's role is this, right here. We make things from things that God has already made. <laughs> yes, we're to do things, we're to make things, we're to grow things, we're to build things, but everything that we're doing that with is from something that God has already made. Even your, the own energy that you're using in your body, it comes from him. Several years ago, Jamie and I were moving to Nashville and so we're looking at different houses, and we're thinking, man, it would be great to, like, build where do we, where, you know, the options were open. Do we find a house that's built already? Do we find a piece of property? We came, we're driving around one day, we found this piece of property that was raw and undeveloped, and we thought this would be a beautiful place to build a home. It, nothing, I mean, it was, there was a street there, but there was nothing else there. The ground had not been touched otherwise. We had a vision for a home, so we bought that lot. We built a beautiful home that our family lived in. And a few years later, we sold that home, made some money, praise God. Another family lives there now. But at the very beginning of that, there was, nothing, there was no house there. It was raw, undeveloped property. It, it, it was a piece of property that its potential needed to be realized, and that's what God's intention is with mankind from the very beginning. He put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? But his intention was never for them to just stay there in like those, that, that little bitty area that was known as the Garden. You know, some scholars have come up and said, well, that was like 20 square kilometers. And I'm like, I, that's over my pay grade to figure out like how big the Garden of Eden was. But we know as we read Scripture, it was never God's intention for God to, for Adam and Eve to just stay there in those 20 square kilometers or however big it was. His idea is that they would expand into the rest of the earth. We see this in Genesis chapter 1 where he says, fill the earth, multiply, have dominion, do something with the resources that I've given to you. Do something with the raw potential that I've already put here. The beginning of the Bible begins in a garden, but where does it end? In a city. Do you know what a city is? A city is a garden that has been developed and, is, and fully realized its potential. It's taking something raw and undeveloped and making something of it. That's God's intention. God's intention was not that the, the earth would remain untouched and unspoiled. And you, in this, in this uh, humanistic world that we live in, you're going to hear that kind of worldview from time to time. Well, if the parasite of mankind wasn't on the planet, just imagine how beautiful this world could actually be. That's not biblical. That's not the biblical vision. God invites man to partner with him to maximize the resources that God put into the planet. And of course, we need to be good stewards of it because it doesn't belong to us. It all belongs to God, right? But we've been given stewardship of it. We don't own it, but we are to care for it and maximize it and make something of it. 
So with this in mind, the question that we ask ourselves today is, is what would change in my life if I shifted my view, if I shifted my paradigm, and instead of me seeing myself as the owner of all these things, I see God as the owner, but me as the steward. I think that would affect all kinds of areas of our life. Every area of our life would be touched if we shifted our thinking that way. The money in that bank account doesn't belong to me. These kids that I'm raising don't belong to me. My own, my time, it's really not my time. It's God's time. All of it belongs to God, and, and it fundamentally changes how you live when you realize that you're not the owner, you're just a steward. It all belongs to him. Here's the second thing. You've been entrusted with a lot. Everybody say that with me. Say, I've... I've been entrusted with a lot. Notice what the master leaves to his servants. He leaves them talents, right? So at this time in history when this was written, a talent was the largest measure of money that, that they used to you know, explain like measures of money. A talent was the largest measure of money. And a single talent was about equivalent to 20 years of wages for the average person. So for the servant that was given five talents, he was given a 100 years wages. That's a lot. But even for the guy who was given one talent, he was still entrusted with a lot. 20 years wages is still a lot of money. So the master gives each one of them Five, then two, then one. Then what did he do? See, guys, I'm out. He left. He peaced out. He got out of there, which means this. He didn't expect them to call him and check with him about every tiny little decision that they wanted to make. Yes, The servants trust the master, but the master has entrusted them with a lot. The master's like, hey, here's a great deal of resource. It does belong to me, but I want to see what you're going to do with it. That's a picture of stewardship. I don't know about you, but when I think about this idea that it all belongs to God, it makes me think, man, there's a lot of pressure on me then. You know, does this mean that with every minute decision that I have to make, that I'm supposed to get down on my knees and pray and ask God for his direction? Well, let me ask you this question. How many of you this morning prayed and asked the Lord, Holy Spirit, Should I toast my Pop-Tart this morning or should I microwave it? <laughs> if you microwaved your Pop-Tart this morning, I want to prophesy to you. I have a word. Here's the word. You need to free up some more time in your schedule. <laughs> if, you, if your schedule's so busy that you have to microwave your Pop-Tarts, You need some more margin. Not margarine, margin. Always use butter. 
Thus saith the JD. Lord, what do you want me to wear to work today? Lord, do you want me to go to Chick-fil-A for lunch today? Well, not today, it's Sunday. But tomorrow, Lord, should I get the chicken wrap or should I get the sandwich? Should I, God, where do you want me to fill up my gas today? At racetrack or at Kroger to get the fuel points? Where, Lord? Some people see God as a micromanager. Well, it doesn't belong to me, so I just better be careful how I use it. Yes, but that's not really the image of God that Jesus paints for us here in this parable. He doesn't paint God as a micromanager. Now, I'll say this. Could there be specific times in your life where the Holy Spirit arrests your heart and gives you some direction about a minute detail in your life that seems insignificant, but he says, hey, hang on, this is what I want you to do. Absolutely, he can do that. And he will do that. He's done that with me. But it wasn't because I spent four hours, got up at four o'clock in the morning and spent from four to eight in the morning praying and interceding. That If you do that, that's a wonderful thing. I'm not, pre- I'm not preaching against that. But what I'm saying is, is that God's entrusted you with a lot, but there are times where the Holy Spirit said, Hey, stop just for a second. I want you to shift and change directions. I want you to do this, even with small things. But again, he didn't speak that to me just because I I spent hours and hours and hours in prayer. I'm just always listening. My antenna is always up. And and I tell you what your antenna, this is a freebie. This is not in the notes. There's no slide for this. What your antenna is to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life is peace. Follow peace. Notice I didn't say follow peaceful circumstances. Follow peace, the peace of Christ that guards your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus is what Paul said, right? Amen. Which sometimes will lead you into chaotic circumstances, but, he, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength is what Paul said. Amen. Writing this from a Roman prison. Not a very peaceful circumstance, but yet he knows I'm right where I'm supposed to be. God's got this. All right, there's your freebie. God sometimes will, Holy Spirit will sometimes interrupt you because he wants to teach you something. He wants you to, he wants to show something to you about his character and his nature. He wants to sometimes show you something about yourself or a situation. Sometimes he he will interrupt you because um, to protect you for your safety. There have been times where we've been sensitive and our kids were going to go off and do something. And in all appearances of the situation, it's like, well, sure, why wouldn't you let your kids go do that? I don't know because I don't have peace in my heart. And the Holy Spirit will arrest you. Well, they've done it before. I don't know. But this time, they shouldn't do it. And sometimes you find out later, oh, my gosh, if I had let my kids go off and do this, this is what would have happened. Sometimes you don't find out. You just follow peace. And then sometimes the Lord will interrupt you to do something because it gives him glory. And all of that's good. And how many of you know that Chick-fil-A sandwiches give God glory, amen? So just eat them tomorrow on Monday when they're open. Anyway. 
But here's this. Jesus doesn't describe the master as a micromanager. The master's not lurking over the shoulders of the servants. He entrusts them with a great deal. He gives them space. He watches to see what they're going to do. Hey, be creative. Come up with something. What, would you, what, what could you do with what I've given you? That's the biblical view of stewardship. There have been times in my life where I had a resource, and I was wondering, what should I do with this? And there have been times where I knew I had direction from the Holy Spirit, and so I would do that. But there have been times where I didn't know, and it wasn't because I didn't ask the Lord, and it wasn't because he wasn't interested. God's interested. It's because he wants to see what I'm going to do. Yes, we trust God, and he entrusts you with a lot. So when you don't specifically know what God's wants you to do with something, then use the brain because he gave that to you. This is a resource that he's given you. And use wisdom. And get godly counsel. And ask, what would be best? And then do, if you're not receiving any specific direction from the Lord, do what you would think best that would maximize the resources that God entrusted you with. I didn't say do what you think would be the most comfortable thing. Do what you think would would honor the Lord. And then when God says, hey, I want you to change course. I want you to go over here. Then you go, great, I'll do that. But until he says that to me, then I'm going to, God, I'm going to just, I have a plan. I'm going to do X, Y, Z with this resource. And I'm going to invest myself in the opportunity that's in front of me. This is huge right now in our generation, especially with people who are just trying to discover who am I, you know, um, it's not exclusive to youth and young adults, but I would say that's probably the primary demographic that's struggling with, with this kind of thing here, and, and they're trying to understand who they are, and what has paralyzed them is this fear that if somehow, if I do this and I make a huge mistake, then I'm going to ruin the rest of my life. Or at the very least, I'm not going to have the life that I think that I want. And so they, it paralyzes them and they don't make any decision about anything. Well, if I do that and if it doesn't work out, then I won't get into the school that I want to get to. And then I won't graduate with that degree. And then I won't get the job that I want. And then I can't get the house and the car that I want and the boat. And, and the life and everything that I want. I'm not sure if I do, should do this. And I'm not sure if I should do that. And so you don't do anything. You know who that sounds a lot like? The guy with one talent who went and buried it in the ground. I'm not sure what to do. There's too much to risk. Here's how I believe that God would direct you. Just do something. Put your hand to something. Pick a direction and go. Remember, follow peace. And then as you're going, let God move you from here to there. How many of you know it's much easier to steer a car that's moving than a parked car? Yeah. And then when God says, hey, I want you to make a right at the next light. You go, okay, God, I want you to take that 
that resource, that income from that investment, I want you to, to give it over here. Okay, God, well, I had a plan for that. I was kind of counting on that. But you're the master. It all belongs to you. So, God, I'll do that. I'll be obedient. When God says, hey, I know that you're going to sell that car, but instead I want you to give it to that single mom. Okay, God, I was planning on selling that and using the money for that over here. But you're the master. It all belongs to you. I'll be obedient. That's being a steward. It all belongs to God. You trust God, and he's entrusted you with a lot. Here's the third thing. God gives in accordance to ability, but he rewards according to your faithfulness. I'll say this again. God gives in accordance with your ability, but he rewards according to your faithfulness. What did it say in verse 15? He said, to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, according to his ability. Now remember, five talents was a lot, but so was one still. And so even if you've only been given one talent, it's still a lot. And I'm going to say, it's not popular to say this these days, because we live in a generation where everybody gets a trophy. But we don't all have the same ability for every single thing. We don't all have the same gift mix. We don't all have the same capacity for everything in life. One of the theologians that you hear me quote often, Charles Spurgeon from the 1800s, in that time, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. Every, uh, he, he pastored the, the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. 10,000-seat church before the days of microphones and PA systems. And every word that he would preach was written down, and then every week they would publish it in the London Times. I mean, this is a guy who's got a gift. He's got some influence. He's got some reach. He's got some ability. And I look at people like that, and I think, Man, I, I don't have that kind of gift. I don't have that kind of ability. I don't have that kind of opportunity. But here's the good news. While God does not give us all equal ability, he, he does not reward us according to our ability. He rewards us according to our faithfulness. So what does that mean? It means your job is not to be successful. Your job is to be faithful. What has God put in your hands? It may not be as much as what is in someone else's hands. You may not have the same public profile. You may not have the same kind of like widespread influence that someone else has. But your job is to not run someone else's race. Your job is to run your race. Your job is to be faithful with God, what he put in your hands. And when you're faithful with what he's given you, he rewards. He rewards according to your faithfulness. Your job is not success. Your job is faithfulness. As a pastor, it's just confession time. As a pastor, 
I've had to struggle with this. I've had to wrestle with this. It's hard sometimes, week in and week out, coming here, and you feel like the growth of the church weighs on your identity or your self-worth. Some of you guys sitting here think, I, I, I just thought that I only dealt with that. I deal with it too. It's the way of this world. And, and you, you think, like, you see other churches, and I'm, like, seeing other churches, they're exploding with growth, and I see other leaders and other uh, pastors and ministers getting these opportunities, and I just think, what am I doing wrong? What's wrong with me? And I have to tell myself, J.D., that's not your race. That's their race. You run your race. Be faithful with God with what God has given you. My job is obedience and faithfulness. God's job is the outcomes. I thought I'd get a bigger amen than that. Anyway. Maybe the number one enemy of you being a good steward is comparing yourself to other people. Did you know that's actually the original sin? That's the original sin in the garden. Satan comes and he tempts Adam and Eve and he says, compare yourself to God. Before they walked in disobedience in, their, in, in the physical, in the action, they, they walked in disobedience in their heart. They rebelled in their heart because the enemy got them to question their identity and compare themselves to God. Oh, you can be like God. This, you know why he doesn't want you to do this over here? Because it'll make you like him. Oh, well, I want to be like him. I want to have that ability. So comparison is an enemy. And one of the things that agitates this more than any other is social media. I mean, you're like scrolling through other people's highlight reels. And what, what you're, you, you see, what you're doing is is you are comparing yourself to them. But here's what you're doing. You're comparing yourself, everything that you know about yourself, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And a lot of times we focus on the ugly. We're comparing that with only a snapshot of someone else's life. With the best angle. (laughs) Sorry, that's probably not my best angle. And, and And the best environment. With the best smiles, right? You're doing all those things. You're comparing what the worst of what you know about yourself with the best of what someone else is. And guess what? You still don't know what's going on. You don't know it took them 25 times to get that picture just right. You don't see the other 24 pictures where their child is screaming and yelling. You know? You got to stop comparing yourself because it's not your race to run anyway. That's not your business anyway. So get your eyes off of that and get your eyes on to Jesus. Focus on what the master has entrusted you to. Here's the last thing. Hello, Dave and Kathy. It's good to see you. You guys, these are my friends. Jamie and I, these are friends of ours that we've had (laughs) for two decades-ish. Yeah. And so I'm so honored to have you here. Anyway, here's the last thing that we draw from this. 
Get busy. Some of you are like, yeah, I want to get busy. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not what I mean. It all belongs to God, right? Man, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Y'all are going to go home and tell your friends, our pastor preached on Matthew 25 today, and he's like, get busy, y'all. No, that is not the point of this message. <laughs> it all belongs to God. You've been entrusted with a lot. God gives according to ability, but he rewards according to faithfulness. What does all this mean? It means to get busy. The, the, the primary meaning of this parable is not that God gave you some stuff to do something with, and he wants to see how you're going to use it. Yes, We've been talking about that. That is part of the meaning. But if you look at this parable within the context of which it was given, which let me just say this, I would recommend every single time that you open up your Bible to look for the context for which you're reading a passage from. Otherwise, it's possible for you to miss entirely the main point of something or you start connecting dots that aren't really supposed to connect. Context, okay? So in the context, Matthew 25, and he's talking about the parable of the talents. Yes, there's this idea of all these things that we've talked about, but there's something even bigger, greater, larger at work here. Matthew 25 is part of a broader discourse. And if you rewind into Matthew 24, all of this is what Jesus is saying here is happening during what we celebrated last week which was Holy Week, right, or kind of two weeks ago, really. It was this last week of Jesus' life before he went to the cross and before he rose and before he ascended. There was a lot of important things. Remember we said when we were reading through there during Holy Week, we said that the gospel writers wrote more about Jesus that happened in that week more than any other time in his entire life. And in Matthew 24, during this week, where there's a lot of important things Jesus is saying, he talks about the destruction of the temple, which would happen 40 years later. He prophesied the destruction of the temple, happened 40 years later. And for us, you guys, we don't really have a like, full baseline of what that would mean to the Jews. We had 9-11, and that was incredibly devastating. But for the Jews to lose the temple... It's like 100 times impactful than that. And then Jesus talks about, he, he's, he's talking about, you're going to know the signs of the end of the age. Now, another way that we often refer to that is like the end times or the last days. And if you've been a Christian for longer than 10 minutes, you probably have heard someone say, we're living in the last days. We're living in the end times, Right? What does that mean? Well, there's places in the Bible, there's places in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2 is one of these places where Peter starts talking about living in the last days. He starts talking to first century Christians about living in the last days. And he quotes the prophet Joel who prophesied that Hey, in the last days, your sons and your daughters, the, the, the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on them, and they're going to prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will have visions. So the question is like, well, was Peter living in the last days? Because I thought we were living in the last days. Who's living in the last days? 
if you think about history, it kind of looks like this. Like, picture this right here. This is the beginning of human history. There's more beyond this, but we don't know what all that is. We just know this. This is creation and the fall and all of that stuff right there. And then we fast forward a few thousand years, and we have the first coming of Christ. Right? We have the first coming of Christ. And so when Jesus was on the cross, he said this thing. He says, it is finished. And then so everything after the cross right here is the last days. Because he says it is finished. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God's up in heaven poolside, on vacation, drinking Mai Tais. No. God is at work in the earth today. Amen? But when he said it is finished, we, we went from this era into a new era. And what is finished? Well, what that means is, is that, that we understand God's plan for salvation. We see how it all works now. We know that what God has done, we see that he's accomplished it all through Christ. So now we're living in the last days, which is kind of like the fourth quarter of a game. The thing is, is that we don't know how long the fourth quarter lasts. We don't know how long this thing is supposed to last for. And and, and so we're supposed to live in this perpetual state of readiness between the cross and The second coming of Christ. Can you guys see that back there? But all of this is the last days. Now, whether or not we are living here or here, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. And to be honest with you, I think it's above everybody's pay grade. Because even Jesus said he does not know the day, nor the hour. So what I can tell you is that what Jesus was saying is about this parable. He wasn't saying, gosh, you guys have so many gifts. It's unbelievable. You're wonderful, and I hope you use them. No, he was saying, get off your rear end and do something. Because the master could return at any minute. You you don't know when he's coming. You don't know when he's coming. So you need to live your life with the same sense of urgency because he's coming back. It could be tomorrow or it could be 500 years from now. We don't know. Did you know that every generation of the church, throughout church history, every generation of the church thought that they were living in the last days and we were going to see the second coming of Christ? 500 years ago, nearly, Martin Luther was absolutely convinced that he was going to see the return of Christ during his lifetime. I brought this up in our life group on Friday night. We're talking about similar kind of thing just for a moment. And World War II, think about the people that lived during the time of World War II. Certainly, Hitler is the Antichrist. Well, he certainly was an Antichrist. But 
he's got to be the guy. Well, he wasn't, so we move on from there. But the point is, is this. Whether or not Jesus is coming back in 10 months from now, 10 years from now, or 10 decades from now, we're supposed to be living as if he could come back 10 seconds from now. That's the point. You ought to be living with some sort of urgency, making the most of today, making a difference that counts for eternity, rather than just coasting through life, finding things that just make you moderately happy. That's not the Christian life. It's time to live on purpose for eternal things. And so the message of this parable is stop wasting your life. God's given you a great deal. Now go something. Do do something with it. Make the most of it. Because if he comes back and you haven't done anything with it, he's not going to be happy about it. In just a few moments, we're going to baptize some people. Praise God. I want to invite those who are getting baptized or those who have children that are being baptized. Go ahead and dismiss yourself from the service. Go ahead and get ready. Get your baptism garments on. And as they're doing that, I have one last story to tell you. I heard this story recently. It's a guy about my age, but he said, hey, when I was about 17... My parents decided that they were going to go on a vacation and leave me at home for the first time without, like, a babysitter or, you know, no friend of the family checking in with him, no neighbor. Just, it was him at home. He was the man of the house. Mom and dad were going to be on vacation for, like, a whole week. But before they left, the dad came to the son and he said, hey, son, I've got a a job for you to do while we're gone, while we're away. And I'm telling you this now, this is, this is what I expect because it's a big deal. It's a big job. It's not some, you know, it's not like just take out the trash. See, they had a long driveway, and what lined the driveway were all these pine trees. Now, if you have any pine trees, you know that if, you, if you're not, you know, up on it, on the maintenance, undergrowth from those trees can grow up and can get scraggly or nasty, and you just kind of have these little saplings that spring up over time. And so the dad said, hey, I want you to go and I want you, while we're on vacation, I want you to clean up all the undergrowth from underneath these pine trees. Okay, dad, got it. No problem. You can count on me. So mom and dad leave on vacation. And this guy is telling the story. He goes, I didn't realize this at the time because there wasn't really this established pattern in my parents' life yet. But now as a 40-something-year-old guy, I see that there's a pattern in my parents' life, and here's the pattern. They say, we're going to go on vacation, and we're going to be gone for a couple of weeks. But then like three days later, they come back. And it's like, well, I thought you were going on vacation. We, we did. Well, you're only gone for three days. Well, hey, we saw everything that we wanted to see, and we just wanted to come on home. Okay, well, they're homebodies. Nothing wrong with that. They just like being at home. But this guy, when he was 17, he had no baseline. He had no reference for that pattern in his parents' life. So his parents leave and go out of town. And instead of getting to work immediately, he goes, I'll just put this off. I'll do this tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. Some of you guys, you're like, I've been in this situation before. 
Maybe you were the child. Maybe you were the parent. Maybe we've been both. And so the next day comes. He goes, you know, uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to put it off again. I'll just wait until tomorrow. And so he keeps waiting and he keeps putting this off and he keeps putting this off. And he says that he'll never forget the feeling of terror that he felt when he saw his parents' car pulling into the driveway. He says, oh my gosh, I didn't even get started on doing what I was supposed to do. He said that night in his house, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, the point, that's the point of this parable. We, we laugh, we chuckle, right? Because we can identify. But the master is coming back. And unfortunately for some, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, J.D., I don't like that. That's kind of scary. That doesn't sound like a loving God. Well, hey, let me introduce you to Jesus. He's the one that said it. Last week, we, we mentioned and talked about how, and the week before that even, we mentioned how when Jesus comes to us, he comes to us, he's the ultimate king of the world, right? It's the code word, son of David. It's code word for the ultimate king of the world. Messiah. When he comes to us, he does come to us gently, but do not mistake gentleness for weakness. It's not the same thing. Gentleness is not weakness. Uh, 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 being gentle does not mean that you're a pushover. Being gentle does not mean that he doesn't have any expectations for you. Being gentle does not mean that he's just okay with whatever it is that you want to do with your life. There are expectations. He expects something from you. You have been given a great deal. And the question is, are you being faithful with what he's entrusted to you? How are you leveraging your business? How are you leveraging your gifts? How are you leveraging your time and your resources? Some of you are just sitting on the bench. You're not even in the game. But I'm telling you, there are plenty of opportunities. Some of you think, well, I should be batting fourth in the lineup. Because I'm a big deal. And that's not where the GM has put you. So you decided, I'm just going to go sit in the stands. And you're here, you're present, that's great, but you're not in the game. And then some people are like, well, I wanted to get the starting quarterback position. And that's not where I got assigned. I'm third string. So I'm just going to watch the game from home. And then some people have just decided, I'm going to brunch. Listen, there's lots to do. Be part of a team. Be part of the kingdom of God. Be, don't be the guy who buries your talent. Be 
be part of a team around here. Be part of a life group around here. Do something. Make eternal deposits. We talked about kids camp coming up in June. Go to kids camp and be a counselor and make some eternal deposits into the lives of some kids. We're going to have youth camp in July. Do the same thing there. We're talking about getting busy. Don't just go through the motions of this life. So the question is this. To you, as a steward, what are you going to do? God has entrusted you with a lot. The master's not lurking over your shoulder, looking at every little minute decision that you're making, but he is coming back. And I've got a feeling that it might be sooner rather than later. That's what it feels like. So what are you going to do with what God has put into your hand? You've been given a lot. Let's get busy. Let's make a difference. Let's be the kind of church that makes an eternal impact on Middle Tennessee, right? Let's leverage what we have for the kingdom of God, that, for something that will last for eternity. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we are not going to be like that servant that buried his talent who had even just a wrong view of you. God, thinking that you are a hard man, that you, that you wanted to reap where you did not sow, you wanted to, to gather where you hadn't scattered seed. God, he had a terrible view of you. God, we want a proper view of you. So that's the first thing that we ask, is to give us a proper view. Widen our focus, our view of who you truly are. And then God, stir within us, Holy Spirit, stir within us that no matter what we've been given, whether it's been five talents or two talents or one talent, that we'd get busy. And God, that we would not bear the weight and the pressure of quote-unquote success. But Lord, we would have this resolve on the inside of us that I'm just going to be faithful with what God has given to me. And God, that we would be satisfied in that. That we would be content in all things, as Paul says. We'd be content with the race that you have given to us to run, and we wouldn't have to be worried about comparing ourselves to someone else's race. And Lord, we pray, God, that as we invest what we've given or what you've given to us, as we invest these things, Lord, we pray that it would multiply for your glory for your honor, to make Jesus, to be, have you lifted up here in Middle Tennessee and wherever it is that you give us influence around the world, in our homes and in our schools and in our businesses, God, wherever we set our foot, God, you would use what we are, are doing with what you've given to us to make you Jesus known. And so, Lord, first we come and we just ask you would help us make our homes an altar. You'd come and inhabit with your presence our hearts and our homes in this church. 